you know, since, uh, since COVID began in our family, we've watched our fair share of movies. And I was thinking about this the other day, the kids were watching some, something on Disney Plus, And I was thinking about all the different kids movies that I grew up with, uh, with, uh, you know, movies like Cinderella and Snow White when I was a kid. And they all kind of have the same theme at the end. The girl kind of finds her guy and the guy finds his girl, whether it's the glass slipper that fits or um, it's, a, it's a kiss. But the ending of most of the Disney movies growing up was kind of this fairy tale. It was, uh, they would get in this carriage of some kind and they would ride off into the sunset. And, it, and then there would be a big choir in the background. Oh, you know, it's like this picture is once you find that right person in your life that everything after that is going to be uh, just perfect everything is going to be uh, great but I was thinking about it the other day how funny it would be at the end of one of these Disney movies they find their their prince charming or they find their princess and then as they're riding off in the sunset uh, something happens the horse kind of breaks into a little bit of a stride and the husband's trying to control the reins and he's pulling it to the left and and then the the carriage hits a rock and they're they're bumping along the road and then all of a sudden the wife uh, reaches over and she grabs the reins trying to take control of it and 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 then you know the carriage is going along and and they're fighting over it they're wrestling they start to yell at each other start arguing and then you know the carriage falls off the road gets stuck in the ditch everything turns over and then you know the horse is kind of sitting there in the field eating grass after this whole uh, debacle and then the the husband and wife the prince and and princess are just sitting there and they're looking at each other with disgust I, I thought you know sometimes I think that would be a more accurate representation of what marriage and life really is because uh, as much as we would love to kind of have the fairy tale ending where we're riding off in the sunset and there's choirs in the background singing that's just not the reality of marriage and life marriage is, is filled with difficulty there can be challenges uh, along the way. And what I think is so kind of crazy and difficult about relationships is that God takes two very different and imperfect people and puts them together. And then somehow we're supposed to kind of make this work out in some way. In fact, I, I found a quote I thought that you guys would like, but it said, uh, it said, women are like wine. They get finer with age and men are like milk. How many of you agree with that statement that women are like wine, they get finer with age, but men are like milk? And there's no end to the quote. I mean, that's it. You know what happens uh, with milk over time. And so you have men and women are very different. And then God brings us together that um, in these ways. And, and yet these two different people who have different ways of looking at things and different ways of, uh, of handling things are brought together. And then the question is, well, how are we supposed to have harmony and unity in a family where everything and everyone's opinions are so different. But I think maybe a more important question that we should ask is not just how can we have harmony, although we're going to talk about that today. The more important thing is why should we? Is there a reason behind it? Is there something greater at work in our families, in our lives? We've been journeying through uh, the book of 1 Peter, and I find the timeliness of this message uh, to be quite interesting because I've had a couple of conversations with people over the last few weeks specifically about their relationships and their marriages. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to find uh, first, uh, first Peter chapter 3. It's where we're going to be uh, studying today, but actually we're going to begin in chapter 2. And to kind of bring you up to speed if you missed a little bit, in chapter 2, Peter really addresses two main topics. The first one is in the first 12 verses of chapter 2 where he calls us as believers 
to live as holy people of God. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, he tells them to long for the word of God that will help you to, to grow and become the people of God and to be a peculiar people, to be a different people from the culture around you. And then the last part of chapter 2, Peter talks about submission. He, he talks about submission to the government. And if you remember, I talked about that where, where he says that we should honor those who uh, rule over us in leadership and that as Christians we're called to live as law-abiding citizens of God as long as the government's not asking us to do something that's contrary to the word of God. And so he tells these believers to submit to government authorities and when you look at the context of that, it's so crazy because when he says to honor the emperor, for example, he's talking about Nero, who is persecuting and even killing Christians. And yet Peter says, our response to those who treat us poorly is to honor them. And then you'll remember also that we talked about that uh, as servants, he, he said that they are to surrender or submit themselves to masters and not just to the good ones, those who treat you well, but also to those who treat you harshly. And it's such a such a difficult call that Peter is placing on their lives. But this idea of submission to authority and submission to to those who are in authority in our lives, it continues into chapter three as Peter is going to talk about submission and, and submitting to one another in our family. So I want us to begin in first Peter, actually, chapter two and verse twenty one, because this will kind of give us the context of what's going to happen in chapter Three, but he says in First Peter chapter two and verse twenty-one, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, this being Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So after Peter tells these believers that they're to submit to government, even though the government might be harsh, and to submit to masters, even though those masters are to be harsh, he says this is the life that you've been called to. And the example for how we do that is Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus suffered on the cross, not for his sins, but for ours. And yet Jesus willingly went to the cross. Remember what Jesus had told his disciples, that no one would take his life for him, but he would go to the cross of his own accord. He laid his life down for us. He paid the price, not for his sins, but for ours. And then notice he goes right into chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, that's the first word of verse 1. In other words, in the same way, in the same way that you're called to submit to the government so that in the end you might win them to Jesus Christ, in the same way that you're called to submit to a master who may treat you harshly so that ultimately you may win them to Christ. And remember, that's what Peter is saying in all of this, that hope is found when we follow the example of Christ, that if we will live the life that Christ has called us to live, ultimately people will see the way that we live and then come to Christ. And in chapter 3, by using that word likewise, Peter is carrying the same idea into this next teaching that might be difficult. Notice what he says in verse 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... So he says that wives are to be in subjection to their husbands. Now, in, in our culture, and because maybe some of us have seen people misuse and, and abuse these kind of teachings from Scripture, 
A word like to be subject is very difficult, but I want you to understand right as we go uh, through all of this that when he says to be in subjection, it is a voluntary act. It is a willingness to put another person in leadership uh, in your life. And so it, it applies, implies that you are willing to follow someone's leadership. And I want to speak to the men just for a moment about this. And, and, I, and I hope that regardless of whether you are, whether you're married or whether you're dating someone or, or maybe you're single and have no plans to be married, I feel like that, that what is going to be taught here today and what Peter's going to say to us applies to all of us. But I want to talk to the men just for a moment. And I think that, that we all need to really understand something important as men. That when the Bible places the order for the family, he says that Christ is the head of our family and that men are the head of their family. That the idea is that the husband and wife are submitting their lives to Jesus Christ. But in the family, God places men in leadership and gives them the leadership of the home. And men, we should take into account just how vulnerable it makes our wives if they are to live in obedience to what God calls them to in verse 1. To be subject to another person, it implies trust. If that wife is going to be willing to place you in leadership in her home and be willing to follow your leadership, you have to understand that there's a sacred trust that, that we have as leaders of our family. But to the ladies, I want you to understand also that God has called us to a life of obedience, to align our lives with his word. And one can't say, well, you know, I'll kind of be the wife. I'll be the kind of wife that God wants me to be when he begins to be the husband that God has called him to be. Because if you look at verse one, this is not about this uh, verse is not about a husband who is a godly man. Notice what he says in verse one, that if a woman is married to a man who does not obey the word of God. And so this is a call for for ladies to be in subjection to their husbands, uh, even if that husband is not a believer of Jesus Christ. And this is an incredibly difficult time, a very difficult call. I, I was thinking back. Uh, there was a guy that uh, I played basketball with years ago, and and I he was a, such a talented athlete, was a very gifted basketball player, but he would not play defense, and so it would get very frustrating for the rest of the team because you know everyone's trying really hard to play defense, and his guy keeps getting by, getting layups, getting open shots, and so it became extremely frustrating. And and we would talk to him about it. We would. We would, uh, you know, try to encourage him and even put pressure on him as a team that he's got to do his part. But one of the frustrating things that we learned, that I learned in that, is that you can't control the words, thoughts, and actions of other people. And you need to remember that in your marriage and in your relationships, that you cannot control other people. So, wives, if you have a husband that is not a follower of Christ, that does not obey the word of God, you can't control that person. Even though you might want him to serve the Lord and to live out his responsibility as a godly man, that may not ever, ha ever happen. But what I did on that basketball team was I determined that even if he didn't do his part, I was going to do what my coach and what my teammates were asking of me because I knew that I couldn't control him, but I could control the way that I lived. But I understand that in verse 1 and verse 2, when God is calling the wives to be subject to their husbands, this is an incredibly difficult call. But it's even more difficult when you take note of who Peter's talking about. He's not talking. It'd, it'd be difficult enough if he's honoring Jesus with his life. But in verse 1, it's for a husband who is not obeying the word, someone who's not a believer and has no interest in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this word as well. This is Peter is not 
giving us any kind of excuse. If you're in the dating scene, if you're looking for uh, someone that you might potentially marry, Peter's not saying that we should have an excuse to marry an unbeliever, but he's speaking to families and he's saying, ladies, this is what God has called you to. And we're going to get to what God calls the men to in a moment. But he calls the women to honor Christ and to honor God by submitting to their husband, even if the husband is not a believer. But it's not just a difficult call. God calls wives to be in subjection to their husbands, especially those who are not believers. Notice he does it for a purpose in verse 1. He says to the, to the ladies, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I want you to write this phrase out. I'm going to say it a couple of times throughout this message, but this is what I want you to take from the message today, and it's this. Godly character will lead others to the grace of Christ. I want you to write that in the comments or write it in the margin of your Bible, put it on your phone, whatever it would be. But I want you to remember that today, that godly character will lead others to the grace of Christ. I was one of my favorite Christian authors is a man named Lee Strobel. He used to be a writer for the Chicago Sun-Times and he was an award-winning journalist and he was an avowed atheist. And he and his wife got married, and if you know their testimony, uh, they both considered themselves atheists, although she was more just agnostic. Um, but she became a believer. Her, her neighbor kept inviting her to come to church, and so she went to church, heard the message of the gospel, and placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And, and everything about their lives changed in that moment. In, in fact, Lee Strobel in his testimony talks about the fact that he... He was really worried that when his wife said she became a believer, that their marriage was over. And so Lee Strobel, if you know their story, set out on a journey uh, to try to disprove the existence of God, to show his wife and others who may say that they're believers in Jesus Christ, that their faith uh, was foolishness and, and not based on fact. And, and through his journey, he became a believer of Jesus Christ. But I was listening to an inter- interview recently by, with Lee Strobel and his wife. And the interviewer asked, what was the one thing that your wife did that you felt like helped you become a believer of Jesus Christ? And he said she built on the commonality that we had. She became a believer and he wasn't. And so she didn't expect him to live as a believer. She was living as a believer. And by her conduct, by the way that she lived and by the the change that he saw in her, ultimately that was one of the things that convinced him to become a believer of Jesus Christ on top of the evidence that he discovered in his journey to try to disprove the gospel. And the point is, is that godly character will lead others to the grace of Jesus Christ. His wife was beginning to develop this godly character and it shaped the way that she lived. And the way that she lived then had an impact on her husband who was, who was not a believer. Remember this, that the gospel is caught. It is not just taught. Remember that as parents and remember that in your workplace, whether you're single or married, that when we proclaim the gospel, when we say something, it's important to say it and to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what people are ultimately ultimately looking for is God shaping your character because godly character can lead others to the grace of Jesus Christ. St. Francis of Assisi once said this, and I love this quote. He, He wrote, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. I want you to hear that again. It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. 
So it doesn't matter where you go to preach the gospel, whether it's at work or down the street or in a conversation at the football field. What, what he was saying was it does us no good to walk anywhere to preach if our walking itself is not the message. In other words, if the way that we're living doesn't match up with what we're saying, then the gospel is going to be no, of no effect. And in your marriage and in your wife, in your lives, when a Christian wife lives a Christ-like life in her attitudes and in her actions and her words, it can attract her husband to Christ. Maybe even someone who would otherwise be uh, be against biblical truth. I was speaking to a young lady this week, and and she recently came to know Jesus Christ, and she said, "My husband is a believer, isn't a believer? Excuse me." And sometimes he makes fun of me and makes fun of my faith. And, and she asked, what do I do about that? And this is what I told her. I said, you keep living out your faith. You have to understand that those who are without Christ, they don't understand the change that's going on in your heart. So you just keep living out. And when, those, when other people treat you poorly, you respond to them with grace. And hopefully when they see your godly character, it will compel them to come to Jesus Christ. And this is not just a one-time thing. In verse 1 and verse 2, Peter uses the word conduct. And that word denotes a consistent lifestyle. That when Jesus changes our lives, it's not about you making a profession of faith and saying, I'm a believer in Jesus, and maybe even being baptized. That's not conduct. Now, yes, that's a behavior. But what Peter's really driving at here is very simple. That if, if we've come to know Christ, and if Christ is changing us, it should change the way that we live completely. We cannot live the way that we used to. Our conduct or our lifestyle should be changed. And in verse 2, there's some incredible truth for the wives here. Notice what he said again. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. The contemporary English version says this, because he will see how you honor God and live a pure life. If I could rephrase it, it's this, when they see how your respect for God is shaping your lifestyle. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, it should change the way that you live. I think that for many of us, for, for the, the world of Christianity at large, for too long, we have really emphasized the conversion experience. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And that's where our life as a believer begins. But from that moment of salvation, we are then being sanctified, we are, which is a word that means to be changed. We are being changed to be more and more like Jesus, to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And in your families, what you have to do is you must allow Christ to change you, and godly character will lead others to the grace of Jesus Christ. Let God make you who he wants you to be and stop worrying about other people. Pray for them, love them, and encourage them, but let God shape your heart because Peter says they will see your conduct and the way God is shaping you and maybe they might be one to Christ in that way. Let's look at verse three as Peter continues. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, very precious. So I want to just kind of interact here for a minute. So I'm asking you to do something. Uh, how long does it take you to get ready to go to work in the morning? So uh, ladies, guys, if you'll just write in the comments, how long does it take you to get ready uh, to go to work in the morning? Or if you don't have to get up and go to work, let's say that you're going to go out with your friends. You're going to go out to a restaurant, hang out, have a good time. Uh, how long does it take you to get ready? So I'm kind of interested to, to see uh, your responses on that. 
but as I was reading this verse this week, it made me think of my grandmother. My grandmother, Lula Pollard was her name, was a very simple woman. I remember when we would go visit my grandmother that very rarely uh, would I see, man, I saw somebody an hour and a half to get ready. Woo. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get distracted, but I saw the, the comment come up. Um, my grandmother was a very simple woman, uh, lived up in the country. When I was growing up, we'd go see them uh, out on the farm, and, and very rarely would I see my grandmother uh, kind of get dolled up. She was just a hardworking lady, lady had raised her, her children and, and was a godly woman. And I remember when we would get ready to go to church because she'd put her dress on and she'd put makeup on. And it was one of the rare times that you would see my grandmother uh, kind of made up in that way. Um, she had family members that her sisters would go to the beauty parlor all the time. And when they would come visit her, they, their hair would be perfect and makeup would be on and everything would look great. And they were beautiful, uh, you know, women and they would come and visit. And But my grandmother just wasn't that kind of person. She would uh, just kind of get up and get to work and, and, and work the, the farm or work the, the garden. I remember one of my favorite memories of my grandmother was we'd go out in the garden, they'd pick the purple whole peas and we'd come sit down and she would have a big bowl and we would just chill those purple whole peas and I would listen to her uh, tell stories. But I remember as a kid also sitting with my grandmother uh, and we would sit on the couch or she'd be in the kitchen somewhere and I'd come up and hug her and I would love to touch her hands. Her hands were all wrinkly and you know, she wasn't a person that was going to, you know, get exfoliating creams and all these different things. Just a very uh, simple woman, but she was a beautiful woman because my grandmother was a woman of godly character. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I always tell them that your photographer, your wedding coordinator, your caterer, your florist, all these people are going to work together in unison and they're going to put together a beautiful day. They're, they're going to put together this uh, beautiful wedding ceremony, but my responsibility as the pastor who's speaking into your life is not to help you have a great day, although we want to have a wonderful day at your, at your wedding. I want you to have a beautiful marriage. And in order for the, you to have a beautiful marriage that honors God, God needs to shape your lives and build in you godly character. character. Charles Swindoll said this, it may take only a few hours to prepare for an elegant evening, but it takes a lifetime to build an elegant character. And I love that because what's most important in our lives is not how we look on the outside, but really what is on the inside that counts. And what that means for all of us is that we need to spend more time building godly character than we do trying to adorn ourselves on outward appearance. You know, somewhere along the way in our culture, we've been sold this lie, and I fear that we're teaching our daughters the wrong things about what it means to be beautiful, that we're teaching people that what's on the outside is what counts. And if you're beautiful, then you have value. Or if your hair looks a certain way, if your hair gets cut in a certain style or, you know, you have a certain type of filter on social media. In fact, it, it's really kind of interesting to me that on social media, when we post pictures, we'll put filters on to change the way that we look just because we want other people in some way maybe to be attracted to that. And I've joked about it before that, you know, we can put fake freckles on our faces if we want those. We can make fake glasses through these filters. And apparently some of you think that deer antlers, those are even cool and make you more beautiful. But somewhere along the way, we've kind of gone astray, right? We were with our family in, in March, right before COVID hit. We went to the, to the Grand Canyon. And Leslie and I, and I have to confess, and, and so please forgive me for this, but um, one of the things that drives me crazy is when I see people taking selfies. It, it, for some reason, it just makes me go bonkers in my mind. 
And so we're standing here, and it's just just this incredible, beautiful canyon. I mean, it's unlike anything you've ever seen before. And so we're there with our family. We're enjoying it, and we're taking pictures, and we're even taking selfies, okay? So it's kind of a little bit hypocritical for me to say this, but we're standing there, and I, this girl is standing there, and she's going to take a selfie. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. You can ask my wife that this girl is sitting here with her camera, and she's doing this to her hair. And, and she had to have done it like 50 or 100 times. It, it was crazy. She was just trying to get the bangs, you know, just in the perfect spot over the ear in front of the ear, over the ear in front of the ear. Do I swoosh to the side? I mean, it, and it was, I was just thinking like, just take the picture already, you know? And I just think that it, we become obsessed with what we look like on the outside and, and our appearance to other people. But did you hear what Peter said in verse four? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is very precious. I think that we spend more time readying our hair for a selfie on Instagram. And what God is calling us to is to ready our hearts for a life of service. And we're more worried about our hair and outward appearances than we are the beauty and the appearance of our hearts before God. External beauty will not bring your husband to Christ. It's the eternal beauty of a heart that is given to God. Notice in verse two, what he talks about, a pure lifestyle. And then in verse four, I just love verse four. I think you should highlight it. And it doesn't matter, men, women, husband, wife, it doesn't matter, single, married. This, the principle of this is so incredible. Stop worrying so much about what's on the outside and look at what's on the inside. That ultimately is what counts. He says to adorn yourself, not with braided hair or gold or clothing. That word adorning that you see there in those verses, it's, it's the word cosmos from which we get the word cosmetics. And it refers to anything that is used to beautify or to decorate on the outside. And Peter's not saying that you shouldn't do your hair, you shouldn't wear nice things, you shouldn't wear jewelry. It's not saying that. You've missed the point. But what he's saying is that we cannot emphasize external appearance and neglect what's most important, and that is the beauty of internal character or godly character in our hearts. He says in verse 4, to adorn yourself with a heart for God. I was talking to uh, my kids recently about values and about relationships. And I've got one that's a teenager and one that's just coming into the youth department. And so just having some of these important conversations with them about what kind of life they want to live and what God has called them to. And, you know, they're at the age where they start taking an interest in, in girls and things like that. And I, I was talking to one of my kids about it and, and I was saying that, you know, what's most important is that the person that you would look for has godly character, would be somebody that, that loves Jesus and wants to follow him with their lives. I said, because, you know, external beauty fades over time. Now, that has not been true with Leslie, just to let you know, and I know you're watching, babe, that's not true. But I was, <laughs> I was talking to my son about this, and I was telling him that. I, I said, you know, I used, to be, I used to be much better looking when I was younger, and I wish I could have taken my phone out and taken <laughs> taking a picture of the look on his face because as I'm telling that, I said, you know, my, I, I used to be better looking. My, my good looks have faded. And he had just this like totally confused look like that. I cannot imagine you being better looking. <laughs> so anyway, but it is true that the external beauty fades away, doesn't it? I mean, those are things that ultimately, ultimately should take a second or even third seat to what's most important. And that is our hearts. 
The heart is where character is, and it's, it's where our character is produced. And I want you to hear what he says in verse 4, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, that gentle spirit. It, it, there's a softness to it that God is asking these wives to, to cultivate in their hearts, to have this softness to their hearts. But, but the idea of gentle, some translations use the word uh, meek. And it also means that there is a strength there. There's a, a strength of steel, but also there's a calmness and a, and a control. And then that word quiet that is used, that he uses in that verse, it doesn't mean that the, the wife shouldn't have a voice. What it means is that she's under control and her presence brings a, a calm to her family. You see, a heart for God is a heart of strength and character. It's strong self-control, quiet elegance. And dignity. My grandmother that I described earlier had that quiet and gentle spirit. Just it seemed like nothing would would ever rattle her. And although she would never be on in her lifetime the cover of a magazine, in my heart she was teaching me what kind of attributes I wanted to pursue when I was looking for a wife. Because godly character is what matters. Because ultimately, godly character leads others to the grace of Jesus Christ. And then the next few verses, we've got to kind of hurry through this, but the next few verses, uh, Peter gives an example for that. In verse 5, he continues, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I want you to connect verse 5, uh, excuse me, verse 6 with verse 1. Verse 1, he talks about a husband who is not a believer. And then in verse 6, uh, Peter uses the example of Abraham and Sarah. When you look at their lives, of course, we know Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. But you have to also remember that Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, asked his family to move to a strange country, just saying that God uh, had asked him to do that. But also in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham convinced Sarah to pretend to be his sister in Egypt because he was fearful if they found out that he was, she was his wife, that uh, something bad might happen. You remember in Genesis chapter 13 with Abraham and Lot that Abraham gave Lot the best grazing land and he took what was left over. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham tried to pass Sarah off again as his sister, attracting the favor of a man named Abimelech. And then in Genesis chapter 22, the very famous story of Abraham and Isaac, that Abraham uh, told his wife that she was going to the mountain and that she, he was called by God to sacrifice their son on the mountain. Now you imagine for a moment being Sarah and hearing all those different things, kind of knowing that through, throughout their time together, Abraham sometimes asked her and said, I feel like God's leading me to, to do this. But then looking and, and sometimes Abraham made poor choices. He didn't always make the right godly choice. And yet she submitted to his leadership. Uh, she called him Lord, that word there. Now, I don't want any of the guys to get any ideas on this. Uh, don't be telling your wife that she needs to start calling you Lord. The idea was that was a term of respect that, that Sarah used to show her husband that she believed that God had called him to be the leader of the family. And she willingly placed herself in subjection to his leadership, even though he wasn't perfect. And even though he didn't always make the right decisions. But godly character is what's important. And Sarah had that. But man, you need to know that this is not a one-way street. And I, I'm sorry that we're, we're running short on time, but I want to read verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the great grace of life, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. That first word of verse 7, I think, is so important because it's the same word as verse 1, likewise. So in the same way that wives are to be in subjection to their husbands, who are to be in, in subjection the same way that servants are to be in subjection to their masters, in the same way that as Christians we're to be in subject, be subject to government, he's saying that likewise in the same way that men should submit themselves to their wives. Now please don't misunderstand that. Submission in marriage is mutual submission. The husband submits to the needs of the wife and the wife submits to the needs of her husband. But when I say that men are to submit to their wives, I'm not talking about in terms of leadership because the scripture is clear that the husband is to be the head of the wife and the head of the home, but he is to submit completely to the needs of his wife. Always, men, always putting the needs of your wife above your own. And Peter gives four imperatives in verse 7. The first one is to live with your wife. And that does not talk about just being in the same physical building, you know, in your home. It's a word that means a relationship that is physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy. It, it denotes, the word in the Greek, it denotes intimacy. To live with your wife, to, to know her needs, to, to have her to be known, and, and that she feels heard and, and respected and valued in your family and in your life. The second imperative is to know your wife, to live your wives in an understanding way. I thought this might be interesting, but if you were going to write a book, uh, men, all the men, if you were going to write a book about this is what it takes to understand your wife, and you could post a gif about the facial expression of a man on the cover explaining how well you think you understand or know your wife, I'd like you to just share it so we can maybe get a laugh about it. You know, sometimes we don't understand each other because men and women are very different. And when he says to live with your wives in an understanding way, he's not just saying knowing what she likes and what she doesn't like. Understanding doesn't mean just knowing facts. The word here that's used, it denotes a deep appreciation and understanding of your wife that goes beyond the superficial. What's your favorite food? Where would you like to go eat? All those kind of things. Those are important, but they're not what's most important. You need to understand your wife and go deeper with her and try to understand why she feels the way that she feels. Your wife needs to know that you really do know her deepest needs her insecurities and desires, and that you are willing to submit yourself to her needs for her good. The third imperative in verse 7 is to honor your wife. It says to show honor. This speaks to us as men appreciating the value of our wives. Many studies have shown that women, many women who suffer from eating disorders, as one example, have suffered at the hands of abusive fathers and or husbands. And men, we need to understand this, that we are to honor and to value the women that God has placed, the woman that God has placed in our lives in our in our marriage. You are to give honor to your wife. When I do wedding ceremonies, I always make that a part of the vows that I promise to love, honor, and cherish you. To honor someone means to show their value. And notice in verse 7, there's a phrase that if you if you read it incorrectly, would seem to be a little bit condescending. He says to show honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. That word weaker does not mean in any way that she is mentally, spiritually, or emotionally inferior. It actually uh, refers to, it would be a word that would be used to describe like a delicate vase. So in our house, sometimes our boys want to play catch, especially Adam. He wants to throw a football around. 
But I always, if we're going to do that in the house, I always do it in a place where it's not going to cause damage to maybe our lamp or something like that because we value those things and we don't want them to break. And the idea that he's saying and what he says to honor the wives as the weaker vessel, it, it means that we should place a high value on our wives and treat them in such a way that we want to take care of them and nurture them and make sure that we're meeting their needs. And the fourth imperative in verse 7 is to submit to God. He says so that your prayers would not be hindered. I fear that too many men are not men of prayer, that too many men are not honoring their wives as they should. Too many men treat their wives poorly and they talk to them in a way that tears them down and doesn't build them up. Too many men abuse their wives thinking that in some way they're approving their own strength when in fact what they're doing is they're showing their own pitiful condition in their hearts. Your family's spiritual condition, I believe, will never climb past the prayers and the godly character of the husband and the man. It's time for us as men to rise up and be the leaders that God has called us to be by submitting, submitting first to God and then submitting ultimately to the needs of our wives, to love them as God has called them, called us to love them. So let me just ask you a few questions in closing today. I want to speak to those who are wives and then husbands and then those who are single. For the wives, just a few questions I want you to really ponder today. Is my husband at the top of my prayer list, whether he's an unbeliever or not? Are you praying faithfully for your husband? Do I put my husband first in my planning? Do I look for ways to honor and respect my husband? Do you spend more time, ladies, cultivating your inner beauty or putting on makeup? Are you submitting to your husband? Are you in subjection to him? And ultimately, are you submitted to God? I think these are questions that are important for us to consider because the reason I I shared that at the beginning about marriages and kind of the Disney movie is I think some of us come into marriages and we imagine that life is going to be like the notebook. You know, we're going to be twirling around and kissing in the rain and it's just love. And when I when I hear people, you know, say things like that, it makes me, you know, just that's not the reality. And so, ladies, I want you to just focus for a moment. Am I becoming the person that God has called me to be? And men, let me ask you this a few questions. Am I working hard to know my wife's deepest needs? Do I know my wife's fears and her insecurities? Men, are you giving honor to your wife? Do you value her? Do you see her as something precious? And in your family, even though God has called you to lead, are you treating your wife? And do you believe your wife is an equal in your marriage? Because she is. In my, in my marriage, Leslie and I are one under God. And yes, God has given me the responsibility to be the head of my family and to lead my family. But Leslie is my equal. I'm not up here and she's down here. We are one together in Christ. And I've just been called to embrace that role as the leader of my family. So men, are you treating her as an equal? And then are you leading your family? And for those who are not married, let me, let me just ask you a few questions. Are you embracing God's plan for your life and allowing him to build godly character in you? Regardless of whether you're planning to get married or not, it doesn't matter. Are you allowing God to shape the inner heart and make you beautiful inside? 
Are you focused on being the person that God has called you to be? Are you becoming the right person if you hope to one day get married? Are you asking God right now in this season of being single, God, shape me into the person that you want to be. Conform my heart to be like Jesus' heart so that I can be the person that God has called you to be. You see, because godly character can lead others to the grace of Christ. Godly character cannot be overstated. It is of high value to God. And ultimately, Peter calls women to be in subjection to their husbands, ultimately, so that through their character and through their godly conduct, they can bring their husband to Christ. And men, we're called to submit to the needs of our wives. We are called to love them. We are called to to honor them and place value on them so that by our lives and our godly character, we might lead them to follow Christ. And if you're not married, if you're single, God has called you to shape the inner heart, to allow him to shape your heart so that you can follow after Christ and be the person that God has called you to be. So I want to pray for us this morning. I just want to pray that God will will shape our character and, and conform us into the image of Christ so that we can be people who would lead others to the grace of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your goodness in our lives. And and I pray, Father, that you would shape us, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. For the wives who are listening today, Lord, what Peter calls them to to be in subjection to their husbands, even if he's an unbeliever, is a difficult call. But you call them to that with purpose. And that purpose is that the husband who is without Christ can be one through the the ministry and the life and and the conduct of the wives. And so just pray for the women that you would make them into the people that you've called them to be. And I pray for the husbands as well, that, Lord, you would shape us into the image of Jesus. Help us to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved us when he gave his life for us on the cross. Build in us godly character so that we can lead others to the grace of Christ. And for those who are not married, God, that you build in them godly character. That we would not all, all of us, be so interested in what people see on the outside, but be more interested in what you see on the inside, what's in our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, to love as he loved and to live as he lived. And we pray this all to be done in Jesus' name. Amen.